Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. Advent. Here we are. We're, we're starting an Advent series. This word Advent, it just means arrival. You know, it's this practice, this old Christian practice, the weeks leading up to Christmas, we think about the arrival of God himself. I mean, imagine that. Think about it. Think about it with fresh eyes for just a moment. God himself came. He arrived. And, and Advent is just a way of like, we as humans, we need fresh reminders, even those of us who have been Christians for a long time, we need fresh reminders. And the Advent season, is it helps us to get engaged. We are bombarded by a myriad messages throughout this, these months that conclude the year. And as Christians, we want to just zero in and say, God came. He arrived, right? So here we are in our Advent season. And to kick that off, we're going to be looking at faith, Faith. In this, this whole Advent series, we're going to be looking at a number of Christian uh, doctrines or, or words, like these, like these fundamental Christian ideas. There's faith, we're going to look at hope, we're going to look at peace, we're going to look at love. And all of these we're going to draw out of one passage in, the, in Paul's letter to the Roman church, Romans chapter 5. All of these uh, uh, we're going to draw out of that one passage. So it's, it's going to be cool to walk together as a church and recurringly look at the same passage and look at faith, hope, peace, and love, right? Does that sound cool? I can't wait. It's going to be a great way to refocus our minds and our hearts on the arrival of God himself to save us. And as I was looking at this, it made me recall an article I read several years ago. Since we're looking at faith today, I I say several years ago, this was like 12 or 15 years ago, right? Uh, In Newsweek, back when there was a paper magazine called Newsweek, I was reading an article, a profile of one of the presidential candidates at the time, and this candidate, like virtually every political candidate, cited faith as as something that was important, as something that he valued, as something that shaped the way he, he viewed the world. And then it was interesting, I still remember this article because the reporter who was reporting on it, it's almost like he went off script for a moment and he just gave this little paragraph where he kind of lamented and he said, what about those of us who have no faith? What is there for us? What candidate is for those who don't believe? And then he went on with the interview, right? It's interesting and it just stuck with me. What about those of us who have no faith? This reporter asked, Here's, here's what I'm getting at. We're 15 years past that article, and the average political candidate still cites faith, right? It seems like faith, this idea of faith, is an enduring, endurable idea, right? Like, it's not going anywhere. It's still with us. This idea of faith. And so, what I want to do is say, well, what does it mean? What does Christian faith mean? And what, is, what does it mean to have faith? And where is your faith? Okay, these are some of our thesis questions for today. Uh, We're going to look at Romans, like I mentioned, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Um, You can turn there in your Bible apps and your Bibles. You can look up on the screen. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. In most apps, that's a free version, which is pretty cool. Uh, ESV, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. When you got it, say got it. All right, let's, if you're able, let's stand as I read. It 
is Paul writing to the church in Rome. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which, we, in which we now stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one would scarcely dare die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's amazing. Verse 9, since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God. You guys may be seated. Man, there's a lot in this passage. The Apostle Paul, he's the king of run-on sentences. I mean, he has so much here. There's just so, so rich. And, and to, before we really dig in, let me give you a quick, very, very fast cursory overview of Romans. So he's, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's making a case, and he's pointing incessantly to Jesus. And he cites these different groups of people in the first, in the opening chapters of this book. And then he gets to chapter five and you see that therefore, that very first thing we read. He, he, he makes this case about how even Abraham, the father of the Jewish Hebrew people, even he was called before he had done anything himself. He was justified by faith, not by his actions, right? And, th- and so Paul then says, therefore, we're like him. Right? Paul is building this case. The, the, the great apostle Paul, and many people have said that, that Romans is, the, is it, it's the richest and most theologically deep of all of his letters. It's like he just goes all in. And in a way, it's like his theological magnum opus. Right? He's, he really wants to describe what Christian belief in theology is. And this passage is one of the keystone passages in the whole book. And we get to study it for four weeks. Isn't that cool? And in this, we see that the language is almost, Bible scholars have said it's almost hymn-like. You know, he's saying things like, pour love into your hearts. You know, it's like a song. It's like a, a love song almost in places. He's, he's talking about all these things that God has done. And also, like the best art, it's beautiful. And at the same time, it doesn't shy away from controversy. Right? He, he, says, he says things like, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, listen, put fresh ears on that. That's controversial. He, he goes out of his way. Somebody might, the best kind of person, might dare to die for a righteous person. But God, let me tell you about him. He died for the unrighteous. On purpose. He volunteered it. So he, he, he sings, almost sings this song in this passage about God's love. And he doesn't shy away from the controversial nature of what God has done, the arrival of God himself, right? Now, taken all together, this passage touches on past 
present, and future in the Christian life. Did you catch that? We were sinners. We were enemies. And then presently, it, it, those who follow Jesus are being shaped into something new. There's that great sentence where suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. There's this, there's this shaping, this sanctification that's happening for the Christian. So in the past, we were enemies. We were unreconciled. We were separated. Now we are being shaped into something new. And the future, it is secure. He, Paul talks about this hope, and it's not a hope the way... Often we use the word hope as, as kind of a, it's a very mushy thing, like, I, golly, I hope so. No, 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 hope in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, is talking about security in the future. It is a fixed, known, knowable thing, right? And he's this hope that will not disappoint us, that can never put us to shame, Paul says. The secure future, past, present, future. A redeemed past, a sanctifying present, and a secure future. Does that sound good to you? A redeemed past, a sanctifying present, and a glorified, secure future. This is what Christianity promises. This is a lofty promise. A, a redeemed past, a sanctifying present, and a glorified future. How does all of this come about? Paul tells us, the first two verses, he uses the same phrase twice in a row, by faith. Did you catch that? In the first verse, by faith, we have been justified. We have access, access into this grace by faith, verse 2. And this is the subject of our teaching, faith. What is this Christian faith? Now, I hope to make, um, in a way, the same case that, that one of the cases that Paul is making in Romans. I hope to make the case that everyone, all of us, have faith, you know, despite what the reporter in Newsweek magazine said, everyone is trusting something or someone. Everyone has placed their faith for a redeemed past, a sanctifying present, and a glorified future. Everyone has placed faith in something to get there. I hope to make that case, and I hope to make the case that why Christianity is the best way. Why faith in Christ produces the best results. Why it is our best chance. Why he is our last best hope. Do you see? That's what I want to do today. The object of our faith. A redeemed past, a sanctifying present, and a glorified future. Now, redeemed, sanctified, glorified. These are kind of like pretty old Bible words. A lot of them have kind of fallen out of fashion. We only hear them when we're in a church setting. So let me try to put some, some language maybe that's a little bit more like what we might say to each other if we weren't in church, right? A vindicated past. You know, everybody wants to vindicate what their actions were, what they did. You know, we can hear this in, in, in the phrase like, no regrets, you only live once. You know, my wife and I were just watching a, a new show that came out, and there's a scene, a woman who's had a, this, this hookup with somebody, and she's, she's like, I, she, you can see in the scene, she's talking to a friend, she, she can't say, I messed up. She's like, I did something, I did something, there's going to be consequences. And then she says, I'm not sorry for what I did, I'm not sorry for what I did. But there's going to be problems. Right? She wants to vindicate her past. She can't confront that she made a mistake. Because if she made a mistake, then what does that mean? If, there, if you have no one to advocate on your behalf, and you admit a mistake, then it is devastating, it is crushing. Do you see? We want a vindicated past. We want a, a meaningful present. 
You know, uh, sanctification is the old, it's the biblical word, this idea that God is moving us from one degree of glory to the next, as it says in one passage. This idea that he is transforming us into his likeness. Let me just say, if like, for us, we don't use the word sanctification. Let me, let me put it this way. We want a meaningful present. All of the mess we're going through, all of this, all the conflict that we're confronted with, all of the things, all of the th- ways that we trip up as we move along in our work and in our families. Man, wouldn't it be great if it meant something? We want a vindicated past. We want a meaningful present. And then we want a secure future. Everyone I know wants a secure future. Everyone I know is working for a secure future. Some people are killing themselves to try to get a secure future. Right? Here's my point, my friends. A vindicated past, a meaningful present, and a secure future is something that every human being wants. Every human being is after these things, and what that means is simply this. Everyone has faith in something that will help them to get these things. Everyone has put their faith in something that'll help them to get these things. Faith is not exclusively for the religious. Faith is practiced by anyone who wants life purpose. You know, the Scottish writer, I can't remember his name, he has that famous quote about every man who knocks on the door of the brothel is looking for God. Have you heard that? His point is this, that everyone, everyone is chasing after something, their afterlife purpose, even the man in his depths of depravity knocking on the door of a brothel. Ultimately, what he needs, the only thing that will fill his heart, is God. Whether he claims to have religious faith or not, he has faith, he is trusting in something, in this case, an illicit sexual encounter. Do you see? Everyone has faith. This is... Uh, what uh, Pastor Tim Keller, um, Pastor Derek and I quote him with some frequency. He says it this way. The atheist, this is a quote from Tim Keller. The atheist might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. They are a good person and they hope that eventually they will get a verdict that confirms that they are a good person. Performance leads to the verdict. For the Buddhist, too, performance leads to the verdict. For the Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this means is that every day you are in a courtroom, every day you are on trial, and that is the problem. But what Paul says is that in Christianity, the verdict is rendered, and it leads to performance. Did you catch that? Every belief out there says, you better perform so that you get the right verdict. Christianity comes along, God himself enters into human history and he says, here is the verdict, justified, 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 and it changes your performance. It's something utterly upside down. And and Pastor Keller is drawing out where then do you want to place your faith? On the endless courtroom drama of trying to prove yourself? of trying to justify yourself to all of your peers and to your boss and to your family and to your parents and to your kids? Or do you want to be justified once and for all by the Almighty God? If he justifies you, then then the rest is taken care of. The Buddhist, the atheist, the Muslim, whoever, they have placed their faith in their capacity to do something, to do something transcendent, to transform themselves 
and then to get the verdict. Yes, you transformed yourself. Christianity is something totally different. Christianity offers a true alternative to the hamster wheel of self-improvement and self-help. Last week, uh, Pastor D walked through Psalm 51, one of the great songs, psalms of confession of sin. David finally is confronted with this sin and he finally, it's like, his, like the, 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 the scales fall off his eyes and he's like, what have I done? Do you remember? Were you here last week? And he, it's only in that confession of sin that now he can finally turn to God and say, I need your help. He had been masterminding all of this cover-up to try to vindicate his past, to try to give meaning to his present, and try to secure his future. Do you see? And it's only when he got real for a minute. No, no, no. I'm only making it worse. Was he able to turn to God, the God who justifies him, the only one who's able to, to vindicate his past, to give meaning to his present, and to secure his future? Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, Pastor Luke, you just quoted Tim Keller and you quoted Derek Puckett. Of course they agree with you. Right? Well, how about this? How about some Drake? Ready? I don't listen to Drake. I was in an Uber. I listened to this song and I was like, that is on point. So, I Googled it. I Googled it. This is a quote. I've had to rearrange some of it to make it uh, workable for a sermon. But here we go. Drake, all my young boys around me saying, get money and have sex. Where did we learn these values? I do not know what to tell you. I'm just trying to find a reason not to go out every evening. I need someone that'll help me think of someone besides myself. Are you listening to him? I need someone I leave through the front door with because I don't want to hide no more. Drake is saying, <laughs> I can't deliver it like Drake. Drake is getting at the same thing. He has put his faith in something that is failing him over and over again, and it's brought him to this low point where he doesn't want to leave. He doesn't even want to go out of the house, he says. He, he needs someone. He says it. I want someone else to go with me. I, I don't want to hide. It's remarkable. Keller's not your thing, Puckett's not your thing, Drake's not your thing, I got another one. Elizabeth Currid Halkett, she's a professor of public policy at the University of Southern Carolina, she's, uh, not, uh, California, pardon me. She's written uh, uh, extensively on how people try to virtue signal and, and kind of like signal their status with each other. And she says in the past, largely people have done this by buying stuff. You know, you buy the Rolex, you buy the Lexus, and you signal that you're an all right person. And she says that's increasingly changing from buying stuff to signaling different kinds of morality. Now you got to be a vegan, you got to drive a hybrid, you've got to have natural childbirth, you got to tweet about racism, and you got to do all this stuff to virtue signal to say that you're a good person, right? And here's what she says, this is a quote. Professor of University of Southern California, but, but, she says, one of the through lines about this behavior is that there's this morality, and then there's this consistent feeling bad when you can't pull it off. There's this feeling over and over, somehow I failed, somehow something happened that I couldn't anticipate, and I'm judged for it. 
Do you hear what she's saying? She's saying even our own moral standards that we have created to signal to others that we're a good person, we can't keep them. They fail us. They fail us in, in seeking transcendence and signaling transcendence by signaling that I'm a good person to others. We'll fail you. That's what she says. Poly, policy professor, not your thing, more into sports. I got Michael Phelps for you. <laughs> 23 gold medals. 23 gold medals. It's insane. 28 Olympic medals in total. Yet, Michael Phelps sat here in Chicago, not far from here on a stage at the Kennedy Forum, and he shared this. He said, every Olympics, I wanted to come home with hardware. I was hungry, hungry, always hungry, and I wanted more. I wanted to push myself to see what my max was. Yet, after every Olympics, I fell into major depression. It was never enough. What is he saying? He's saying, whether he knows it or not, that where he put his faith did not deliver. It was insufficient to vindicate his past, to give meaning to his present, and to secure his future. Sport's not your thing. I've got another one. Something, maybe the quotes I've done are too modern. How about ancient Augustine, the ancient African? Augustine, depending on how pretentious you are. He says this, my sin was that I sought not in God himself, but in the things that he had created. In myself and the rest of his creation, delights, heights, and perceptions of what is true and right, and in all of these seekings, I only collapsed into suffering, embarrassment, and error. Mine, and the, the way he, he has with language, listen to this. Mine were the putrid fumes rising from scummy lust and the diseased eruption of puberty befouling and befuddling my heart with their smoke. It's all smoke and mirrors, he says. It, it, Augustine was a privilege, of the privileged class. He had everything he could want and he denied himself nothing and it left him, what? Collapsed in suffering, embarrassment, and error. Empty. Where, where he put his faith did not deliver. More into the arts. Renowned chef, are you a foodie? Renowned chef, uh, award-winning chef, James Beard Award, everything else, he's won it all. Dan Barber. In uh, a chef's table episode that he is the star of, in a moment of vulnerability, he looks into the camera and he says this. He says, there's one way to look at my life as really exemplary, in the sense that I have two restaurants, I have been very successful. And there's another way to look at it. And it's quite sad. A lot of this work is the attempt to fill some kind of sadness or something that I didn't have in my life and I wish I had. I'm just trying to fill a void. He's put his faith in his success and it doesn't deliver. I can go on and on and on. YouTuber, influencer, uh, Elle Mills gained millions of followers, tens of millions of views. She posted a video where she's practically yelling at the camera and she says simply, this is all I ever wanted. This is why the expletive, then why the expletive, am I so expletive unhappy? She put her faith in becoming a successful influencer and she got it and it didn't deliver. More into literature, here's Henry David Thoreau. 
you've heard this one, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation from the desperate city. You go into the desperate country where you have to console yourself. It's a stereotyped but unconscious despair that is concealed even under what we call games and amusements. This quiet desperation. And if in Paul's language, they've put faith, too many people have put faith in something that cannot deliver them what they need. Finally, this is my last one. Derek Thompson, uh, writer for The Atlantic, published a piece earlier this year or late last year and just received overwhelming, he was inundated with messages from people that, that basically were saying, that pricked my heart, you're onto something. <laughs> he wrote a piece about work and this is what he says, quote, work has morphed into religious identity. Promising transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with the explosion of new faiths. Some people have faith in beauty, some people have faith in political identities, other people have faith in their children, but everybody has faith in something. Are you listening to this? This is the Atlantic. And work is among the most potent of the new faiths, competing for congregants. But our desks, he says, were never meant to be our altars. Powerful. And then he does something so unexpected. At the end of his article, he says this. He says, this is the right time for a confession. Religious language in a secular magazine about work. He says, this is the right time for a confession. I am the very thing that I am criticizing. I am devoted to my job. I feel most myself when I'm fulfilled in my work. My sense of identity is bound up in my job, in my sense of accomplishment, and my feeling of productivity collapses when I have writer's block. Something so small as writer's block can send me into existential funk that spills over into every part of my life. Why? Because faith in work cannot deliver what Derek Thompson needs a vindicated past, a meaningful present, and a secure future. The Bible itself, Paul himself, the, the author of the, the letter that we're reading, he said, I had it all, and it's true. He was rapidly rising as a young star in his career. He cites all of his pedigree and how he studied under the best scholars, and he, he looks at all of it, and his conclusion was, it was rubbish. It never delivered what I needed. King Solomon, very similar story. He, he ruled over Israel, over, its, over the height of its wealth and its power. And he denied himself nothing. In his conclusion, vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. Just when you think you can grab hold of it, it slips away. Here's my point, my friends. Leaders, athletes, artists, professionals, academics, influencers, they each have faith. They all have faith. And history is littered with successful people who are trying to tell us the same thing that Paul is telling us. That it's not enough. That where they have placed their faith is not enough. There's too many of us, too many of us in this room today think that we are miserable or that we are not where we want to be simply because we haven't gotten the success yet. Here we have an, a list, I could go on, but I don't want to become more boring. 
We have a list of successful people who achieved everything they set out to achieve, and they say they feel worse because of it. Why? Because they placed all their hope in this thing, and then when they finally got it and it didn't deliver, they're worse off than they were before. Placing your faith in the flesh, in your morality, in tradition, will not vindicate you. It will not bring meaning to you. It will not secure you. Paul, in the first, in the first four chapters of Romans, he, he identifies three groups of people. They're kind of like the, the, the decadent pagans. These are the people who deny themselves nothing. They just chase after whatever the flesh wants. They're the moral pagans. This is interesting. They're moral pagans. The, the people who want to be a good person, even though they might not believe in God. And then there are the religious people, the religious Jews primarily in, in Paul's day. It's, it sounds just like today. There are people who will deny themselves nothing. There are people who just want to be a good person. There are people who are religious. And Paul says, this is his conclusion, none of it. Your tradition, your religion doesn't get you what you need. Your uh, immorality doesn't get what you you need. And your morality doesn't get get you what you need. You need someone. You need something else. Sex, money, power, success, accolades, family, whatever. Career, they don't bring what you must need. They don't deliver transcendence. Each of them, listen, each has a capacity for good, but none are capable of vindicating your past, of giving meaning to your present, and of securing your future. Do I sound like a broken record? That's what, that's what Paul is doing in Romans here. He's making the case. This is a one-point sermon. He's making this case that everyone has faith in something. The question is not whether or not you have faith. This is the question, where is your faith? Faith by itself, faith has no value on its own. It is the object of faith wherein lies its value. Faith has no value on its own. It is the object of your faith wherein lies the value. You, you can believe all day long in any number of things. So what if they don't deliver? The object of your faith is where the value is. Too many of us, uh, we've failed at our trying and our trying and our trying, and so we double down on the same behavior and we try harder. It's, It's insanity. And Paul says, how about something else? How about Christian faith? Something that is better. We have been justified by faith. Paul says. We have, listen, peace with God. Imagine. We stand in grace. We rejoice in hope. We have secure future. This, this, my friends, sounds like what I'm after. Paul is saying, what difference does it make when you shift the object of your faith from work to the work of Christ? What difference does it make? All the difference in the world. What difference does it make when you shift your faith from sex or money or power or family or career to Jesus? It makes all the difference in the world. All of the difference because faith in Jesus is the only, Jesus is the only one who has the power to vindicate your past, to give meaning to your present, and to secure your future. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Last week, uh, looking at Psalm 51, many of us um, were drawn into confession of our own sin. Like, we've got problems. This week, I want to do something as a congregation where we confess, not our sin, but we confess our faith. 
Okay, so it's been a while since we've done kind of a congregational reading. We do it occasionally here at Renewal, but it's been a little while. So let me give one ground rule. Don't say it if you don't mean it. Don't confess faith that you don't have. But let me give a little caveat. Perhaps your faith has been weaker than you want it to be. Still say it. You know, there's this great prayer from uh, this guy who's who comes to Jesus, he runs to Jesus, he wants his kid to be healed, and, and, and he says to Jesus, if you can heal him, please heal him. And Jesus says, if you can? It's such an interesting response. If you can? Why are you even asking me? And then the guy says something that is so honest to Jesus. He says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Do you remember this story? Yeah. You can, the, the inner conflict is coming out. I believe, help me in my unbelief. I know that that's many of us here. You believe and you unbelieve. Man, confess in faith what we're about to do. So we're going to put something up on the screen. I'm going to read um, the leader portion and you guys read the congregational portion. Stand if you're able. As we, conf- as we confess our faith. We have been justified by faith. Through him, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We can even rejoice in our sufferings. We know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and godly hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Our faith is in Jesus, and so we rejoice in God, Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. You may be seated. Listen, I I mentioned it earlier. Advent simply means arrival. God arrived on our behalf. He has positioned himself to receive our trust and our faith. God stooped low to do what we could never do in all of our striving to climb high. Do you see? He became like one of us. This is why we celebrate Advent. Let me, um, let me conclude with prayer. Lord, we have confessed afresh our faith in you. And I pray, O oh God, that you would lead this church, that you would lead each one of us in faith and trust. We confess also uh, a wandering hearts a tendency to turn to other things and to think and to ask of other things for them to deliver what they can never deliver. And we confess our faith in Jesus, the only one, the steadfast one, the only one who can change our past, who can give meaning to our present and who can secure our future. And it is in his name that we pray, amen. 
Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.